This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 22nd, 2006. Yes, indeed, last night I was watching Spike Lee's documentary, the one called, um, let's see, When the Levees Broke. Uh, a Requiem in Four Acts. It's on HBO Television Cable. It's uh, on again tonight, the second half, part one last night. I'm sure it will repeat over the coming weeks. I just wanted to warn everyone. Uh, I mean, I know that pictures aren't the real thing, but uh, at the end of part one, uh, there are images of the dead that are, well, I couldn't sleep, to tell you the truth. They are uh, really horrific. And I remember thinking um, back when I was a little kid, uh, I guess I must have been 12 or so, I remember the the pictures that came uh, to the newsreels. They were at the corner movie house and... Uh, I think my mother had tried to prevent my seeing them, but it was after World War II, and they showed the pictures of the uh, uh, concentration camps. You remember the ones with the, the bulldozers pushing uh, hundreds of bodies into mass graves. And uh, I was just a little kid, and I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like a painting by Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, that one, I still remember that day, and I remember wandering around the beach trying to explain to everybody what I had seen. Uh, in any case, check out Spike Lee's documentary, but be forewarned about the ending of part one if you uh, are concerned about your children or about um, the images that get into your head. Uh, actually, you might want to check out another item here. It's the um, New Yorker for August the 21st. There is a piece here on uh, Katrina, right? Uh, let's see. The 31st of this month is the year's anniversary. This article is called The Lost Year Behind the Failure to Rebuild by Dan Baum, B-A-U-M. And uh Yes, the pictures here are pretty horrendous, too. Let me read you just one little thing here. If there's anybody to blame, it would appear to be it's the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, people still fighting for the intimacy of the neighbor neighborhoods. Uh, I think what struck me most was one of the guys on one of the planning commissions, you know, he wants to take the poor people out of... Um, the lower nine, and scatter them all over New Orleans. He says, if they live next to middle-class people, you see, that get up and go to work every morning, then they'll get up and go to work. Right. Let's put the Puritan ethic right down there. Yes, God forbid people should have fun. The poor should get together and have their own uh, neighborhood and do a little dancing. Actually, uh, we see some of that in Spike Lee's film, but let's see. Here's the bit about... Uh, oh, God, these pictures. Okay. The bit about the Army Corps of Engineers, they, uh, you know, uh, they admit that they made a mess of it. Uh, and, of course, the money that George Bush promised is not coming through. 
uh, they say maybe one-tenth. Anyway, um, it says that three recent studies of New Orleans flood protection system make grim reading. A University of California at Berkeley study found that the Army Corps of Engineers, pressed by the contrary demands of better, faster, and cheaper, had, over the years, done such a bad job of building and managing New Orleans levees and flood walls that even with post-Katrina repairs, the city remained in as much peril as before. The Corps itself, in a report of more than 6,000 pages, acknowledged that it had built a hurricane protection system in name only and that it had done almost everything wrong from assessing risk to choosing technologies. Uh, An article in the journal Nature found that the city and its levees are sinking into the Mississippi Delta mud much faster than anyone thought. In some places, the authors wrote, uh, New Orleans is sinking by an inch a year. Some parts of the levee system are now three feet lower than their builders intended. Right. This article goes on to say, yes, in the months to follow more bad news, street violence has grown so alarming, five teenagers were shot dead in a single incident one night, that mayor, uh, right, the mayor had to call in the National Guard to help patrol the streets uh, as much as $2 billion in federal disaster relief was discovered to have been wasted or stolen. And last week, a survey found that little more than a third of the pre-Katrina population had returned. The fate of the Lower Ninth Ward and the rest of the city remains anyone's guess. Uh, New Orleans tend to talk about the prospects of another devastating flood in the fatalistic way that people in the 50s talked about nuclear war. They know that they are living under the ever-present threat of annihilation They want the people in power to do all they can to prevent it. And, of course, in the meantime, they do nothing but soldier on. This article has a lot more about the the bureaucratic snafus that we're all familiar with by now. Uh, Spike Lee's uh, program gave us a good impression of the egos that got in the way. You know, there was the mayor, the governor, the president, all of them... uh, Everybody seemed to care more about, uh, you know, their political position. I, I can hardly believe some of the behavior. Uh, it's the darndest thing about the late 20th and early 21st century. We seem to have had a, a kind of a moral collapse, crash, yes, uh, The end of Western civilization, as we know it, is crashing. I have a letter here that I got in the mail. It's in my box when I came in today. And it's from uh, a dear listener called uh, Ella. And uh, she says kind things to me. And she uh, tells me about a book that uh, she suggests I read. It's called... On Killing the Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. This is, uh, I think, uh, emblematic. She found a statistic that's emblematic of where our world is going. Uh, 
This book is described as an, uh, an illuminating account of how soldiers learn to kill and how they live with the experience of having killed. That's a uh, quote from the Washington Post. Now, in the book, we learn that in World War II, only 15 to 20 percent of the combat infantry were willing to fire their rifles. In Korea, it was about 50 percent. In Vietnam, the figure rose to over 90 percent. I find that hard to believe, but uh, could be. Anyway, um, apparently the book is about what it takes to condition people to kill. Uh, apparently, you, you do have to be taught. <laughs> it is it is a learned skill, folks. And as um, a friend in the hall said to me just now, yes, video games will do it. Quick as anything. Uh, the guns do seem to be proliferating. Uh, of course, I blame it all on... Uh, uh, Poverty and, of course, uh, overpopulation, but I won't get into that subject now. It always gets me into dreadful trouble. Uh, what I would like to do today uh, is to go back to my book called Women on War, my international anthology of writings from antiquity to the present. This stuff um, fascinates me. I... Uh, I've been trying to figure out why it is. Um, my history teachers told me that history was numbers, you know. That is to say, there are many more Arabs in the world uh, uh, than Jews or Israelis, therefore, you know. But uh, if that's true, if numbers win in the end, why then women would be ruling the world. Obviously, there's more to it than that. Uh, what I'd like to read to you today is just a little bit of history. Uh, <laughs> after watching the Spike Lee documentary last night, I thought, why does this look like something out of the past? Uh, not just like something from the third world, but something, I think my race memory kicked in. Uh, Louisa May Alcott has a book called Hospital Sketches, and... Of course, she's the author of Little Women, but uh, she was also um, a woman who lived through the uh, Civil War. And uh, here's a little excerpt. Um, she wrote, yes, she wrote letters for soldiers while she was serving as a nurse in the Civil War. And uh, she published uh, some of these letters and then she published these sketches uh, Here's what she writes. Uh, she says, The first thing I met was a regiment of the vilest odors that ever assaulted the human nose. And the worst of this affliction was, everyone has assured me that it was a chronic weakness of all hospitals and that I must just bear it. So I did, armed with lavender water, with which I so besprinkled myself and premises that, like my friend Sarah, I was soon known among my patients as the nurse with the bottle. I progressed by slow stages, upstairs and down, till the main hall was reached, and I paused to take breath and make a survey. There they were, our brave boys as the papers justly call them, 
for cowards could hardly have been so riddled with shot and shell, so torn and shattered, nor have borne suffering for which we have no name, with an uncomplaining fortitude which made one glad to cherish each as a brother. In they came, some on stretchers, some in men's arms, some feebly staggering along, propped on rude crutches. One lay stark and still with covered face, as a comrade gave his name to be recorded before they carried him away to the dead house. All was hurry and confusion. The hall was full of these wrecks of humanity, for the most exhausted could not reach a bed till duly ticketed and registered. The walls were lined with rows of such as could sit, the floor covered with the more disabled, the steps and doorways filled with helpers and lookers-on, the sound of many feet and voices, uh, made the usually quiet hour as noisy as noon, and in the midst of it all, the matron's motherly face brought more comfort to many a poor soul than the cordial drafts she administered or the cheery words that welcomed all making of the hospital a home. My footnote here is uh, strange to say uh, the barbarous conditions are the same today as they were then, but apparently, according to Louisa May Alcott, uh, there were uh, loving caretakers in her day, that is, um, motherly women who were uh, kind to the sick, to the dying. Uh, surely we have something like that today. <laughs> she goes on to write, the sight of several stretchers, each with its legless, armless, or desperately wounded occupant entering my ward, admonished me that I was there to work, not to wonder or weep. So I corked up my feelings and returned to the path of duty which was rather a hard road to travel just then. The house had been a hotel before hospitals were needed, and many of the doors still bore their old names, some not so inappropriate as might be imagined. For my ward was in truth a ballroom, if gunshot wounds could christen it. Forty beds were prepared, many already tenanted by tired men, who fell down anywhere and drowsed till the smell of food roused them. Round the great stove was gathered the dreariest group I ever saw, ragged, gaunt, pale, mud to the knees, with bloody bandages untouched since put on days before, many bundled up in blankets, coats being lost or useless, all wearing that disheartened look which proclaimed defeat. I pitied them so much I dared not speak to them, though, remembering all that they had been through since the rout at Fredericksburg. I yearned to serve the dreariest of them all. Presently, Miss Blank tore me from my refuge behind piles of one-sleeved shirts, odd socks, bandages, and lint. She put basins, sponge towels, and a block of brown soap into my hands. With these appalling directions. Come, my dear, begin to wash as fast as you can. 
Tell them to take off socks, coats, and shirts. Scrub them well. Put on clean shirts. And the attendants will finish them off and lay them in bed. <laughs> yes, that's the middle of the 19th century. Here we go again in the television documentary last night of one of the, uh, let's call them first responders, said that, yes, he saw uh, women with menstrual blood and, and um, people with feces all over them. Uh, the human condition is a sad affair, and if we do not take care of one another, uh, things can get pretty sick, pretty sad. Um, in any case, let us look at... Uh, The Impact of Genocide on Women. Um, this book also has a couple pieces by Arundhati Roy. I hope I have time for them, but this one is about Rwanda. Um, it's about the impact of genocide on women in particular. Uh, I realize that any human being is capable of suffering. Uh, surely women don't have it much worse than men. However, the quality of the uh, torture, the punishment, uh, I can't help but take it a little bit more to heart because of the uh, uh, the sexual, hideous nature. Um, these women, yes, widowed, displaced, abused by the war, you know, uh, raped women are, in many cases, cast out of the family. Uh, they are... Uh, tortured and abused first by the enemy and then by their own families. Uh, this is by uh, Jean uh, Yuan Kunda, born 1966, director of the Organization for Women in Rwanda, long title that I cannot pronounce. His testimony is found in a 1999 book book entitled Genocide in Rwanda, A Collective Memory. She writes, Rwanda has just lived through a tragedy that caused more than a million deaths and provoked the massive movement of refugees and displaced persons. For reasons that are largely sociocultural, the massacres especially targeted men. In Rwanda, as in many African countries, it is men who have the right of inheritance and who pass on their name, family heritage, and ethnicity to their children. The struggle for possessions, land, houses, furnishings, and for power has therefore been primarily the concern of men and of male children. It is they who are given the right to property and to power. A traditional expression in Rwanda states that the hen does not crow in the presence of a cock. Because of this tradition, the women of Rwanda were powerless in their suffering during the genocide. In Rwanda before the war, everything that was done was done without the participation of women. Women did not have a role in the decision-making process. It is, above all, because of this tradition that women were powerless to resist the genocide. 
Even if today many women are alone, widowed or abandoned by their husbands, even if they are poor, even if they are traumatized, even if they were raped, they are now more than ever the prime actors in the process of reconciliation and reconstruction in Rwanda. We believe that the women of Rwanda must convince themselves in this role. Women have certain advantages in this regard. They should help other women to show their strength in the current crisis. Uh, today, the social fabric, as well as the traditional moral values of respect, tolerance, self-respect, and dignity, have been utterly destroyed. Women have always been considered as the heart of Rwandan society, those who reconcile, those who unify the family. Uh, women are considered the ones who welcome those who are tired. Again, a footnote here. That reminds me of what Louisa May Alcott writes about women in America in the middle of the 19th century. You remember when the role of woman was to comfort, comfort the sick and the dying, to be a caretaker. Uh, uh, she goes on to say, women had the power to prevent their children, whatever their age, from taking part in crimes such as those we have just witnessed in Rwanda. But if one considers the participation of youth in the massacres, one realizes that stronger forces were working against this traditional power of women. In addition to other social factors, politicians, the media, and decision makers manipulated the youth of Rwanda to the point that women were powerless witnesses to the massacres committed by their children, their husbands, brothers, relatives. When one closely analyzes the conflict of Rwanda, one realizes the extent to which the inequality of social relations between the sexes can be a barrier to peace. Above all, one realizes the heavy consequences this barrier has on the development of a country when huge numbers of women are left on their own to manage their families. It is women in particular in Africa who feel the terrible consequences of genocide, massacres, and war. They are largely unprepared to assume all the new responsibilities that fall on their backs. This is why it is particularly important to consider the role of women in new societies. The difficult times that Rwanda experiences on a political, economic, social, and cultural level require vigilance and rationalism more than ever before. Women's organizations as intermediaries between grassroots initiatives and governmental programs are called to commit themselves to the resolution of women's problems in order to build a society that is better able to support lasting development. Those involved in the development of the country have the responsibility to consider the best way to maximize the involvement of women. She goes on in this vein at great length. Uh, basically, what she is asking for 
uh, is a complete, I would call it a complete turnabout, as Sojourner Truth says. We have to turn this thing uh, upside down. Uh, here is her uh, list. Here is her list. Uh, this is her idea for a response to problems. Uh, she says that these are the problems, yes, and we must figure out in each case how to respond. Uh, she says the problems are one, psychological trauma caused by the loss of direct and indirect family members, rape, its resulting unwanted pregnancies, fear of sexually transmitted diseases, Physical trauma resulting from wounds, rape, malnutrition, lack of housing, owing to destruction, um, uh, lack of money for rent, increase in the number of widows or woman-headed households with many children or orphans. Problems of inheritance, especially for women who were in common law marriages. And the list goes on and on and on about uh, HIV and AIDS. It struck me uh, this morning, I was listening to the news for a moment, and I noticed that Hezbollah is giving the uh, families in Lebanon $12,000 for a year's rent, and then, of course, they have promised to rebuild the houses. I thought of that $2,000 that uh, George Bush offered the uh, uh, refugees in New Orleans, uh, and then, of course, he reneged on that. Uh, <laughs> in the article, uh, one of the locals says that uh, says some of these people have never seen $2,000. These are Americans, right? Uh, in any case, this article goes on to describe what can only be called um, the prison that women find themselves in in these Society is mostly due to poverty, the poor conditions that they live in. Uh, she finishes by saying, in a global sense, the women of Rwanda uh, are traumatized by destructions of all sorts. They regret that they did not have the means or ability to prevent these attacks from occurring. Now they're living in camps, the victims of a persuasive campaign they're given false information by militias and former soldiers. They're prevented from returning to their homes. Uh, in the camps, they're overwhelmed by a lack of basic necessities. The death toll among the children and mothers is very high. Lack of living space and so on. Uh, once again, yes, the ain't it awful list. I wonder, um, I wonder if it is possible for women to grasp the nettle, to literally um, take over their societies and run them. Uh, I was looking here at something that Virginia Woolf writes. Uh, this is the point at which she had given up. She had uh, seen World War II coming. She had written an essay called Three Guineas, and uh, she has simply copped out, opted out. That is a privilege that we can no longer afford. It's a privilege that women in Western culture think they have. 
Virginia, of course, simply committed suicide. Uh, she writes, Let it be understood soberly and rationally between us that you are fighting to gratify a sex instinct which I cannot share, to procure benefits which I have not shared and probably will not share, but not to gratify my instincts or to protect either myself or my country. For, the outsider will say, in fact, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I want no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Picture, drop the shadow out of sight. 9-11 was not only the largest and least investigated homicide in American history, but perhaps also the largest hoax, with extremely fateful consequences for human civilization as a whole. If our educational community cannot address this issue, then it risks remaining merely academic in the worst sense of that term. The words are those of David Ray Griffin and Peter Dale Scott, two of the intellectuals who will appear with Ray McGovern, Kevin Ryan, and Peter Phillips at a KPFA benefit event, 9-11 in America.